Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Season 4 of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of Berlin's Schwules Museum. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, an author and writer. And we are really delighted to be back with you a little bit later than we normally do our fall seasons, but you may have noticed that a few things have been happening in the world. Uh, you may also know that we sound a little bit different. That's because we are doing a Corona-safe version of our podcast where we are recording online from our various writerly dens in uh, Berlin and Barcelona. There are bookshelves behind us, um, and so if we sound a little different than normal, that's why. Um, socially distanced by um, 2,000 kilometers. Socially distanced by 2,000 kilometers, yes. And uh, actually, I think one of the last things I did before the world went upside over is uh, go to Barcelona to record season three with you, Hugh, and it just seems like a different universe that we were all living in. But nonetheless, the evil queens continue, and uh, I'm sure that the listeners just want us to get to our first subject. So who are we going to be talking about today? Today we're going to be talking about Cecil Rhodes. So Cecil Rhodes, today's subject, died a year after Queen Victoria, almost 120 years ago. Yet here are a few headlines from the acid bath of British comment pages this summer, all of which have mentioned him. Spectator, the 11th of June. Headline, Roads Must Not Fall. Daily Telegraph, 13th of June. Removing the statue of Cecil Rhodes would be cowardly and anti-intellectual. Spectator, 18th of June. The statue topplers are obsessed with white men and white history. Daily Mail, 18th of June. Oxford University's cowardly surrender is a willful vandalism of history. Daily Telegraph, 18th of June. Oxford's capitulation over Cecil Rhodes' statue is depressingly unsurprising. Spectator, 8th of July. If Rhodes falls, we'll regret it. Unheard, 9th of July. Why shouldn't the curriculum be Eurocentric? Etc. etc. ad infinitum, ad nauseum, to be honest. You get the picture. I mean, someone seems to have an unnecessary obsession with old white men in history, no. but I don't think it's the left. So why, uh, after like a century after his death, is Cecil Rhodes still, still such a newsworthy figure? Well, the obvious answer is, of course, because of the campaign to remove his statue from Oriel College, Oxford, a campaign that has links firstly with the Rhodes Must Fall campaign to rename Rhodes University in Makanda in South Africa and to remove his statue there. And secondly, because of resonances with the Black Lives Matter campaigns in the US to remove Confederate statues and symbols of white supremacy. The case for removing his statue is fairly straightforward, but perhaps more interesting and enlightening in terms of thinking about Rhodes' actual legacy is the vociferousness of the response by British people, especially conservatives. What is it in Rhodes' life and ideology that needs to be memorialised that is so vital to the British idea of itself? White supremacy? Spoiler alert, Ben. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, Cecil Rhodes' childhood gave no real clue to the life that was to follow. He was certainly not a sort of T. Lawrence character, uh, running away from school or cycling around the country. In fact, he shares more in common, perhaps, with his peer, the future US president and imperialist Teddy Roosevelt. He was born in 1853 in Bishop Stortford, Hertfordshire, a market town just north of London that is today home to Stansted Airport. He was the sixth child of a Church of England vicar, Reverend Francis Rhodes, and his wife, Louisa. His mother came from a family of wealthy landowners and bankers from Lincolnshire, and his maternal grandfather was a recently elected MP when Cecil was born. 
By all accounts, she was a very caring and maternal influence, and Cecil was the apple of her eye, her favourite child. But her beloved son uh, had an extremely moody disposition and seemed prone to something like depression. Like Roosevelt, he was also a very sickly child who suffered severely from asthma and was lucky to have a middle-class mother who was unusually caring for the time. This countered somewhat the influence of his father. Rose's dad came from a family of well-off farmers who owned land around Islington, Shoreditch and Dalston in what is now East London. His grandfather and his brothers capitalised on the urbanisation of the area, becoming rich off rents and land speculation. He also owned a business producing bricks and tiles and was involved in building a Regent's Canal, a vital key in, industri uh, in industrialisation of North and East London. But his grandfather was ruined in a court case regarding an illegal lease uh, of the de Beauvoir estate in Hackney um, that was intended to be a sort of planned town in Dalston. As a result, his son, Francis, turned his back on commerce and looked towards God, becoming a vicar. So Francis, his father, was both aloof and resentful of his sons and curt and businesslike, another bad dad. He prided himself on... It seems on... like normal parenting is a feature of these upper-class English yeah. families, and it only gets more normal when they lose some of their status. It really just... Yeah. Yeah. They're so good at raising their children. No wonder they all turn out so well. Look at Prince Andrew. Well, his, his, um, his mother was quite kind, um, to be fair. But his father prided himself on never having delivered a sermon over 10 minutes long. He sort of hit it 10 minutes every single time. And he wasn't cruel as such, but he was certainly an officious patriarch within the house, um, although he had a good reputation as being fair-minded amongst his parishioners. He was also someone who valued education very highly, helping to establish a school in the town but his relationship with his son was distant. Rose was described by those who knew him as a child as, quote, very pale, always very delicate, having at times special foods, and, quote, as white as a sheet, as well as, quote, pigeon-toed and left-handed, which was regarded as a bad thing at the time, I understand. Uh, he, also, he also was said to prefer croquet to cricket, which uh, sounds like a euphemism. It does sound like does a euphemism. A, you know, Prefer croquet to cricket, shall we say? Hmm. Uh, he was sent to a local school age nine, and he was a good student, excelling in history and geography. He had considered going to university with an eye to becoming a barrister, but life has a habit of getting in the way. And his elder brother, Herbert, aged 23, had emigrated to what was then known as N the Natal province in South Africa in 1868, when Cecil was 15. It was the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War, and British business saw an opportunity to colonise the region with an eye to producing cheaper cotton than the American South. Encouraged by the Natal Land and Colonisation Society, Herbert took, off, uh, took part in this early colonisation of the province. But I thought that uh, the British capitalist class were actually the heroes of the end of slavery because they, um, they ended it and then... Um, well, I guess uh, that story doesn't include the part where they kept merrily buying cotton produced by slave labor and under slave-like conditions of colonization for many, 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 many more years. Uh, yeah, quite, yeah. It's, um, it's worth remembering as well that while the process of colonization had been encouraged by European states from its earliest days through the granting of charters, colonization itself was led by commercial companies such as the East India Company, and the process of imperialism, uh, the sort of securing of colonized territories into formal empires with territorial control by European powers, 
was a later part of the same process. The year that Herbert moved to South Africa, 1868, was just the 10th anniversary of the founding of the British Raj in India. That is the formal consolidation of British business interests in India under British rule directly from London. In South Africa, colonization happened even later. It was 1795 that Britain captured the Cape Colony, the colony around uh, what is today modern Cape Town, on the southernmost tip of the African continent from the Dutch. The Dutch had wanted a safe port on the Cape of Good Hope to enable their own colonization of the Dutch East Indies, and had taken the land through violence and expropriation from the uh, indigenous uh, Khoisan population. The British invasion was in order to prevent the colony, which was an important stopping off point now for British colonization of India before the building of the Suez Canal from falling into French hands. This conquest was confirmed in, 18, in the 1814 Anglo-Dutch Treaty, and from that point on, British colonization slowly began to begin in South Africa. The Cape Colony was a self-governing colony, but there was conflict between the new British settler colonists and the Dutch settlers, who over the years had developed their own independent culture around farming and colonization, and called themselves Boers, which is uh, Dutch slash Afrikaans for farmers. Resentment grew between the two colonist cultures, and when the British abolished slavery in the colony in 1834, the Boers began to leave the colony. 94% of farmers of European descent in the colony held people in slavery, and were only entitled to compensation if they travelled to London, which most couldn't afford. And of course, it's important to point out, of course, that of the 30,000 plus enslaved peoples weren't entitled to compensation at all. Um, but this... It's not, um, they were just the enslaved people. Yeah. They didn't own anything, you know. Yeah, right, because um, uh, the compensation was for the loss of quote-unquote property. And Anyway, this emigration and colonisation in land by birds was known as the Great Trek. And, of course, what they regarded as unmapped, uncolonised land outside of the colony was home to many other indigenous people, um, people such as the Zulu and uh, Ndebele people. In these lands, the farmers found their own independent, founded their own independent self-ruled republics known as the Burr Republics, including the Orange Free State, the Transvaal, and the Republic of Natalia. The British annexed the Natal, uh, Natalia Republic shortly after in 1843, for, forming the colony of Natal, and this is where Hub, Herbert moved to find fortune and colonize land. I just have to say that, and this is hardly the biggest issue here, but the Orange Free State and the Republic of Natalia are two of the most hilarious settlement names I've ever heard in history. And I'm sure that the hilarity is covering up quite terrible crimes, mm. but the Republic of Natalia sounds like a, you know, angsty teen movie made in 2007 starring Ellen Page. Um, well, it didn't last long because it was annexed and became the, the colony of Natal. Yeah. Um, Very sad for Natalia and Ellen Page. Yeah. So while Herbert was there, meanwhile, uh, Rhodes continued to suffer in uh, in the UK from um, in England from bad lungs, and his family became worried that he might be consumptive, that is, have tuberculosis. There was actually an unfounded fear, but in 1870, his family decided to send him to join his brother in South Africa for the good of his health because of the climate, and to find his own fortune. His biographer, Robert Rotberg, uh, claimed that his maiden aunt gave him £2,000 for the trip, which I worked it out in today's money, and it amount, amounts to almost a quarter of a million, which seems to be quite a lot for a 17-year-old boy being sent to 
the Cape Colony, but perhaps not. Either way, um, the 17-year-old hardly seems to be the figure of a sort of coughing, sweaty, consumptive child. He later wrote that he was aflame with excitement and unable to sleep. And so he went downstairs to find a map of Africa, which he poured over until the morning. And by the time the sun came up, he said he was, quote, uh, he said, quote, Africa possessed my bones. It would actually turn out to be more the other way around. The journey aboard a small ship called the Eudora took him 72 days. After a short, day, a short stay in Pietermaritzburg, he joined Herbert on his new cotton farm in the Unkumazi Valley. But the venture was really a no-go. The land was entirely unsuited to cotton production. The Rhodes brothers, inexperienced in agriculture, struggled to even turn a profit. But um, just three years earlier, in 1867, the first diamond had been discovered in the province. And from his arrival, Cecil was captivated by rumours of the possibility of vast wealth that could be made in diamonds. In 1869, a young shepherd boy had found a shiny stone in the Orange River, which he had sold for 500 sheep, 10 oxen and a horse to a local farmer turned diamond dealer, Schalk van Niekerk. Van Niekerk sold it on, and by the time it reached England, it was known as the Star of South Africa and was bought by the Countess of Dudley for £25,000, which is almost £3 million in today's money by my calculations. Frustrated with his failure to succeed in cotton farming, Herbert travelled to try to, to try his hand at finding diamonds in the river, leaving 18-year-old Cecil to run this enormous farm. As it turns out, in this instance, diamonds are not a girl's best friend. Um... So yeah, Cecil was running this farm, 18, like 17, 18 years old, and he implemented a whole bunch of new farming techniques and efficiency methods, but they failed to really make so much of an impact. And so in 1871, he went to join his brother at the start of this new diamond rush. Cecil and Herbert joined prospectors near Kimberley where two diamond fields had been found. Diamonds had been found in the earth on a farm that belonged to two Boer brothers, Diederich and Johannes de Beer. The fields were staked out into claims, which is sort of like compartmentalized areas that you can, you're allowed to work on. And prospectors were limited to claim two claims each. Then groups of men, including Cecil and Herbert themselves, just dug up the earth and sifted it in the search for diamonds. These two fields were called Old Rush and New Rush. And uh, this was a super rudimentary affair, just men with pickaxes hacking through the earth in this big pit in the search for diamonds with all the earth hauled out by hand. The men lived in tents and the claims were marked out by these rough roads, which often collapsed into the pits. And in these fields were upwards of 10,000 men. So you're approaching a scene sort of reminiscent of a Bosch painting here, you know, these, these pits of thousands of men toiling, sort of hard drinking, fighting, just digging through the earth with these rudimentary tools. Disease was obviously also rife, especially dysentery. But the rewards were so high that it was worth it for a young man looking for a fortune. Cecil's quarter in a pit was by chance extremely lucrative, as was his brother's, and he was grossing about £100 a week in diamonds. So just to clarify, because I think when people hear about terrible working conditions in mining and colonies, they might assume that this is some kind of forced labour situation. Um, in, in this particular instance that we're now talking about, these are the kind of uh, minor owners who stake out a claim and then are putting their own actual physical labor into that into that piece of land. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they would have they were employing people as well. There's sometimes up to sort of six to eight people per claim, but it was quite small, a small operation. And it was super amateur, you know, it was literally a field with these claims sort of staked out. And then you arrived with your with your pickaxe and your horse or whatever, and you just dug until you found diamonds. But um, but it was extremely rich in diamonds. Um, so, yeah, he he. He made about a hundred. He was grossed about a hundred pounds a week on average in diamonds, which works out today at about twelve thousand pounds a week. Um, and if you go to patreon.com slash <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to make a sort of um, comparison, but yeah, this this thing of like spending a week digging through the dirt for diamonds and in return for <clears throat> twelve thousand pounds, the bad guys millions. Exactly, the great sort of smog-like hoard we're sitting on. Yeah. But then, so the scale of this operation like quickly became absolutely massive. Like within a year of the start of digging, there were 50,000 men in what came to be called the big hole. Um, <laughs> um, can, can you 50,000 hot, hot and sweaty men down the big 50, hole. 50,000 hot and sweaty men all the way up in your big hole um but this is this is at a time when the Hot. entire population of the cape colony was about 50,000 men so so 500,000 men so it's like 10% of the entire colony in one hole so you're saying <laughs> you're uh, saying that Cecil Rhodes was so gay that he managed to get 10% of the hot sweaty men in the colony inside his hole <laughs> Um, ben, I'm 34. I can't keep laughing at these things. I need to grow up. Um, anyway, by the time it was closed, the big hole was 240 meters deep and 463 meters wide. So it has a claim to be uh, the, the largest hand excavated <laughs> hole in the world. <laughs> um, We're terrible. The biggest, the biggest hole. I, I promised fewer dick jokes this season. I didn't yeah. promise fewer hole jokes. Um, so during this time, he showed himself to be uh, quite skilled, both as an entrepreneur and an investor. I mean, everybody turned up basically, you know, with, with two two claims and um, and their, their pickaxes, and and he he started to do really well. So he, um, alongside with his business partner Charles Rudd, who he had met in the hole, um, he began. I love to meet <laughs> my uh, my business associates in the biggest hand excavated hole it's a it's a cozy spot for uh, intimate meetings and conversation so um alongside charles rudd um he began to run other operations um including importing from england an ice making machine selling ice to miners at a premium which i failed to see how that could be more profitable than digging up diamonds but apparently it was i guess he did both he also um, invested some of his earnings in a new railway from the mine in Kimberley to Durban on the coast, um, which is, sounds like a good idea, actually, if you're, a, if you're an investor in that way. And he began to bid for tenders. Rhodes and Rudd won contracts from the board that ran the mine that was known as the De Beers Mine Board for pumps to drain the deep mine of water. Um, <laughs> for when the big hole gets flooded. Is that um, a is that a wap? <laughs> yeah, my my wet ass mine. Um, 
but anyway, yeah, and he made this bid for this 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 tender, this this contract to drain to drain to drain the deep the big hole, um, despite not actually having any plant or equipment at all. So it's like not not a very ethical business practice, but it actually paid off because he did manage to acquire the necessary equipment. And so by 1873, just a couple of years, um, he was extremely well off. And when limits were raised on the amount of claims that one person could own, he started to buy up more with the profits that he was making from his lucrative claim. Um, and even that year, he, he was wealthy enough to return to England uh, to attend Oriel College in Oxford University. Um, but he only stayed for a term because his business interests in South Africa really required his presence. Because while Rhodes was continuing to consolidate his operations by buying more and more of these claims, he had a challenger on the scene, another Englishman called Barney Bernato. Um, Barney Bernato, uh, he, he actually claimed to have the same birthday as Rhodes. Um, that's probably untrue, but he was uh, only 20 or 21 at this time. And unlike the middle-class Rhodes, Bernardo uh, was raised in the extremely impoverished Jewish community around Whitechapel in East London. So while Rhodes received the generous £2,000 starting capital from his aunt, Barney and his brother, um, also his brother, uh, saved up their money by betting on himself as a prize-fighting boxer in the East End and winning. And he saved up just enough to get his steerage to South Africa. And so he had to actually walk from the port to the mine, which took him three months. However, his time as a prize Jesus fighter, Christ. yeah, his time as a prize as a prize fighter gave him a good eye for odds and a head for business. Bonato started buying up claims at the same time as Rhodes, and soon he was his number one rival. Bonato and Rhodes had basically the same idea at the same time. Nearly all of the world's diamonds came from South Africa. If one company controlled the mines, they could also control the market ensuring supply stayed just below demand, keeping the prices high. And were demand to fall, they could simply stockpile all the diamonds, and then once demand rose again, the prices would rise, and then they could release diamonds to the market at the new higher prices. And so the mon monopoly would be absolute, and therefore the profits would be enormous. At this time, overproduction from the mines had crashed the diamond market, um, which must have made the need for the monopoly to seem even more pressing. Most players pulled out, except from Rhodes and Bernardo, and Rhodes' success with pumping out the mines enabled work to continue into deeper, richer seams. Because well, if I understand it correctly, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Hugh, um, there's no particular reason why diamonds are as expensive as they are, right? And, and I mean, maybe you're going to get there, but this is basically the, the entire reason that... Um, that diamonds are so expensive is because of these kinds of monopolies, many of which are still are still running. Am I am I correct on that? Um, yeah, and not just that many are still running, but as we'll get to, um, the same companies. So in 1876, Rhodes returns to Oxford to complete his degree, and he was a huge admirer of the university, saying, quote, wherever you turn except in science, an Oxford man is at the top of the tree. And that would later sort of influence his ideas around scholarships which is something that brings his legacy right up to the modern day. But on returning to South Africa, his battle with Bernardo came to a climax. Um, so Rhodes had largely gained control of the consolidated De Beers mine by this point. Uh, Bernardo had control of most of the rival Kimberley mine, but a French company, the Compagnie Française de Mines de Diamantes de 
Cap de Bonne Esperance. Pardon my French. They own this large chunk of claims right in the centre of the Kimberley mine, which Bernardo is trying to buy up. So their ownership that meant that Bernardo couldn't sink deep underground mines into the more diamond-rich lower, lower strata. So Rhodes had the advantage. And so Rhodes secured a large loan from Nathan Rothschild to buy the French company, but Bernardo was able to make a much higher offer. Before it had been accepted, Rhodes contacted Bernardo directly. Withdraw your offer, he said, and I'll buy it at my original offer of just 1.4 million. I'll then sell it to you for £300,000 plus a 20% stake in your company, the Kimberley Central Diamond Mining Company. Bernardo did the deal and acquired the mine, but Rhodes had also been buying up shares in Bernardo's company on the open market. Within, Ro within months, Rhodes had acquired control of Bernardo's company and forced a merger between Kimberley CDMC and De Beers. Minor shareholders objected this monopoly and the merger went to court. And when the judge ruled in favour of the plaintiffs, it was Bernardo's Kimberley CDMC that was liquidated. And who was waiting in the wings to buy it up? But Rhodes and De Beers. But don't feel too bad for Bernardo. He sold his shares to Rhodes for £5.3 million, which is equivalent today of almost £700 million. Um, and he's at this point in his early 30s. So still in his 30s, less than 20 years after, um, since, he, since he arrived in South Africa to pluck a meagre harvest from his brother's failed cotton farm, Cecil Rhodes now owned every diamond mining operation in the country and almost the entire world's supply of diamonds. He consolidated his control of supply with his control of distribution. And in 1889, he cut a deal with a London organization with the uh, impossibly gangsterish name, the Diamond Syndicate. The Diamond Syndicate? Yeah. Were they not trying? <laughs> do, do, do they sit? Do they sit in like a cave and like smoke strange-looking pipes and cackle? I yeah, mean, I'm, uh, like, Cecil Rhodes really is like a sort of proto Bond villain in terms of his like level of evil, but also yeah, his his branding. Um. So this syndicate meant that there were now only ten companies in the world which could buy from De Beers at all and cut diamonds, which allowed De Beers to have a tight regulation on supply. And one of those companies was called Bernardo Brothers. So it was all like nicely tied up between these people. But doesn't, I mean, I was told that when you have free markets and no regulation, then the, the invisible hand makes uh, efficiency and then the prices for the consumer uh, lower also and such as well this is this is actually bringing it back to teddy roosevelt right like in in america roosevelt sort of came to power and achieved such electoral success by um by smashing some of those monopolies and a lot of those restrictions that were put in then and then also um following the wall street uh, crash lasted right up until the 90s, 2000s, right? Roosevelt was a racist colonialist, but a lot of his economic interventions are, uh, I mean, they're some of the first things that the new kind of neoliberal right starts to roll back uh, when Reagan gets into the 1980s. Yeah, that's history, one thing after another. Um, so anyway, in 1881, Rhodes, uh, now chairman of De Beers, employs a new secretary. His name was Neville Pickering. He was four years Cecil's junior, 
and he was everything that Rhodes was not. He was tall, he was handsome, he was well-built, and Cecil took an immediate shine to him, helping him to obtain his diamond broker's license. Before long, he had asked Pickering to move into his small home near the mine. Neville refused, but then Cecil flew into a rage, and so in time Neville accepted, they moved in together, and it was noted he soon stopped attending dances or showing much attention to women at all for fear of provoking Cecil's rage. It seems pretty clear that Cecil was deeply attached to the younger man. He broke off vital negotiations to attend his 25th birthday party, although whether the affection was consummated, so to speak, is, is unknown. Uh, we do know, however, that just three years after these quote-unquote friends met, Rhodes amended his will, leaving all his considerable worldly wealth to Neville. Sadly, Neville would never inherit the De Beers' millions. Riding his horse a few years later, Neville was thrown and landed in some thorny undergrowth. Upon hearing of the accident, Rhodes, who was in uh, Witwatersrand, uh, negotiating the purchase of some new gold claims, immediately took a coach to, for the 15-hour, 300-mile trip back to Kimberley, where he nursed Neville, who had developed a blood infection in his wounds. Neville languished for six weeks, during which Rhodes put aside all of his work to, to tend to his sick friend. He never really fully recovered, needing crutches, and two years later he eventually succumbed. Rhodes was said to be inconsolable with grief, weeping openly at his funeral despite his reputation for a stiff upper lip and breaking out into fits of maniacal laughter. Is this where we start to get into the gay part of bad gays? Yeah, this is, this is all the gay stuff. And to be fair, uh, I did read also in um, Robert Aldrich's um, Homosexuality and Colonialism that this was actually sort of reciprocated. It, 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 he didn't sort of necessarily fully pressure him and when he was on his deathbed, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but Neville says something like, um, you have been my father, mother, brother, and wife to me, or something like this, you know. Is it words to that effect. A good book that I recommend to, to other listeners. Yeah, fascinating book, yeah. But um, Neville's death didn't completely ruin Rhodes for the next man, and he soon developed a relationship with Henry Latham Curry, who he employed as his... Uh, <clears throat> private secretary um it's funny you know the because we 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 research and 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 record a couple of these um at the same time and i can say that people being mothers fathers brothers etc and also uh, private secretaries are going to come up in our next uh, in our next episode as yeah. well um yeah and, and he took he took that role for uh, a decade but uh, 10 years later, Curry announced that he was engaged to be married and Rhodes flew into a jealous fit and ended his employment immediately um, after Curry chose, he was given an ultimatum, you've got to choose, choose your wife or choose De Beers, and he chose his wife. Uh, De Beers and implicitly Rhodes, of course. And at his wedding, uh, Rhodes whispered to the bride, I am very jealous of you. <laughs> Just good friends. <laughs> I hope he did it while wearing like a really big hat, like Harrington, <laughs> Colby, and Dynasty or something. Twizzling his um, moustache. From um, under the giant hat in the, the big hole. 241 kilometer wide <laughs> hole, however big it was. Um, and then throughout the 1890s, he's also said to have this group of fit, athletic, blonde haired young men surrounding him at all time. 
who were known by the collective name Rhodes's Lambs. This is kind of creepy. Like Mariah Carey's fan base? Yeah, yeah. Uh, little monsters. According to the memoirs of his later private secretary, Philip Jordan, which were published less than 10 years after Rhodes's death, quote, in the early 90s, Mr. Rhodes sent 13 young fellows, all Kimberley boys, to the Rhodesia. They were called Rhodes's lambs to assist in populating the country. A few of them had died in the country and others whose health had broken down had left it. Bob Corydon and Johnny Grimmer were the only two who were still in Rhodesia. Mr. Rhodes was very fond of them. They had passed some strenuous years in the country and had faced hardships which come to a, to a lot but a few young men. But then perhaps Jordan was uh, jealous of the young Johnny Grimmer, um, as Rhodes was said to have been very fond of washing his feet. Washing his feet? Yeah. My goodness. Uh, I also think that uh, Kimberly Lads is a good euphemism as Kimberly well. Kimberly Boys, yeah. Kimberly Boys. Is he, you know, a Kimberly boy? Yeah. Johnny Grimmer, the Kimberly boy. Um, but that possibly was because Jordan, Philip Jordan himself, was it's something he'd enjoy because he also wrote in his memoir, quote, an uncontrollable desire took hold of me to be his private secretary. Sometimes I would lay awake half the night, working myself up into a state of delirious excitement, speculating on the joy and pleasure which would be mine when I should be always with him and go wherever he went. I worshipped him and had an intense desire to work for him and to please him. I used to take long, solitary walks, sometimes over several hours, thinking of nothing but roads, roads, roads. What was Rose's physical appearance like at this, at this time? Are these people attracted to, uh, to power and, and you know, uh, extensive English colonial jowls? Or are we talking about a kind of strapping? Well, he was young at this point, right? He was at late 30s, maybe, uh, early 40s. Um, he's, I mean... But the it, take, it takes all sorts, Ben, you know. You can't... old in their 30s, I mean. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was sort of short and stocky and moustached, but some people like that, well. luckily, luckily for me. Hmm. Um, luckily for me. His final relationship was with Sir Leander Starr Jameson, also known as Dr. Jim, who was uh, a British... Sir Leander Starr Jameson? Yeah. Leander. That's a, yeah, it's a great name great heterosexual name um who was also known as dr jim and he was a, a british administrator in uh rhodesia with uh, and he developed a very very close bond with um with Rhodes. again we don't really know if this relationship was consummated but he himself nursed Rhodes through his later years when he suffered from a weak heart and upon Rhodes's death jameson was not only appointed the executor of his will but was the main beneficiary and he was allowed to live on in Rhodes's mansion. And when he died 15 years later in 1917 in Britain, obviously the country was still at war, but just a year or two after the cessation of the hostilities um, in 1920, his body was moved and he today lies besides Rhodes in his grave. So was Rhodes gay? I mean, um, it certainly seems likely from the circumstantial evidence that at the very least his, his only meaningful intimate relationships were with handsome young strapping men but it doesn't rule out the possibility that he himself was physically asexual um but perhaps it's more interesting to look at 
at that as part of how Rhodes formed his own gender identity as a sort of white colonialist male for whom strength, bravery and resilience were these cardinal virtues, something that he would have looked for in the figure of the intrepid young man who, like himself, was in his mind brave, braving the unknown in the pursuit of imperial conquest and wealth. Yet he was noted even during the Victorian era, which is hardly a, a great era for women, um, for his hostility towards women. Indeed, um, Queen Victoria herself once inquired to him whether it was true that he hated women, and he said to have responded, how could I hate a sex to which your majesty belongs? Which is a very homosexual response, no? That is an extraordinarily homosexual response, even by the standards of the responses of the British upper class, which tend to be extraordinarily homosexual at all times. But anyway, back to, back to the bad bit of, of Rhodes. Um, I mean, he wasn't simply this sort of powerful cutthroat diamond baron. In 1880, he began a political career, getting elected to the Cape Parliament uh, as an MP. And by 1890, he was prime minister of the Cape Colony, so in 10 years. Immediately, he, and, and at this age, he's still in his, his 30s. Um, he immediately began trying to remake the colony according to his own ideology. Uh, perhaps this is a good time to revisit some of those discussions around Rhodes today that we were just talking about at the start of the program. Um, for example, when Matthew Paris wrote in his article uh, in The Spectator that he admires Rhodes and that, quote, his racism was routine for his era and he was not unusually cruel, so I would not blame him for his racial attitudes. Um, it needs to be pointed out that while his racism was common at the time, uh, it wasn't routine. There was a debate, a fierce debate, that was happening in Britain about the ethical implications of the colonization of Africa. There was fierce, fierce resistance throughout what is now South Africa from the people who lived there. Um, listeners who remember our episode on Roger Casement will recall that while Rhodes was prime minister of the Cape Colony, uh, Roger Casement was compiling human rights reports to highlight the horrific crimes of European col uh, colonialism. Just as today, the, the racism of Rhodes was contested, like it was contested at the time. And the reason it was common was because people at the time, like Matthew Paris's of today, were arguing that it was routine, that it was nothing unusual. And yet Rhodes is noted during his tenure as prime minister, not simply for maintaining white supremacy, but for strengthening it in law. At the top of the podcast, I mentioned an unheard article with the headline, Why Shouldn't the Curriculum Be Eurocentric? Uh, in which the author, Nigel Bigar, who is quite astonishingly the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford, wrote, I briefly respond to Nigel Bigar. <sighs> yeah. uh, he, he wrote in this article, um, quote, Rhodes did support a franchise in the Cape Colony that gave black Africans the vote on the same terms as whites. Well, let's look a little deeper at that astonishing claim. Um, in 1892, in his second year as Prime Minister, Rhodes passed the Franchise and Ballot, Ballot Act that raised the property requirement for voting from £25 to £75, which is a considerable leap at the time. And then he passed the Glen Grey Act, which limited the amount of land black Africans could own in order they specifically could not meet the property requirements for voting. So in a strictly logical sense, yes, Rhodes supports the franchise that allowed black Africans the right to vote on the same terms as whites but he explicitly made those votes, uh, those terms, unmeetable for black people. It's like saying, 
everybody's got a right to own a Ferrari. Like if you put in the, the until you have the means, it doesn't mean anything. And you're explicitly denying people the means to get to that thing. So, you know, but, fuck I mean, Michael Bigar. The only thing that I have to say to Nigel Bigar is that uh, facts don't care about your feelings. Oh, fucking hell. I, it's, just, it's just so intellectually dishonest. And it's but done so is... to, for, to, to, to perpetuate and further exactly the same sort of ideology that, that Rhodes was arguing for. You know, Rhodes, is, Rhodes was a, a lying cheat in order to, to sort of further white supremacy. And that's exactly what's happening here. And it's the same argument that they use now, you know, everybody, and, 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 you know, I'm upon the States, like these are the exact, oftentimes this is the way that a lot of the restrictions on black American political involvement were phrased. They would be uh, theoretically um, for everybody requirements that are designed such that black people can't meet them or they're, that are administered in such an unfair way that they can never be met. Things like poll taxes, things like yeah. uh, quote unquote literary, literacy exams before voting. Uh, and so, and you know, exactly in the same way, the argument said, oh, we're not doing anything. We're just, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just such transparent exactly the same. Anybody who buys it, anybody who buys it is either, is either an idiot and shouldn't be listened to or needs hours of surgery in order to have their tongue removed from the boots of power. Uh, and therefore we shouldn't listen to them because their mouths are full of boot. Um, Big R also wrote, quote, far from being racist, he showed consistent sympathy for individual black Africans throughout his life. I mean, first of all, that's clearly like some of the sort of, some of my best friends argument. Secondly, it's just not, not fucking true. Um, this is from a man who, uh, Rhodes, who said, quote, the native is to be treated as a child and denied the franchise. We must adopt a system of despotism in our relationships with the barbarians of South Africa. How you can possibly say that, that pers the person who's uttered those words is not racist is fucking beyond me. Well, here's then again, it's the same thing that they do now. They trot out the one individual person who's supposed to somehow by the fact of their presence, absolve everything else. And it's such a and, and then tactic. they write articles like this, and then they have the fucking nerve to turn to people who say that these people shouldn't be venerated with statues and accuse them of rewriting history. Well, it's because they're not interested in history. They're interested in what is White supremacy. A very, a very boring exercise um, because none of these people, if they didn't work at these... Uh, newspapers or magazines, which are mostly money-losing propositions that are funded by right-wing billionaires in order to continue the kind of ideological conditions for a lot of the terrible things about the world that we live in, none of these people are fucking employable. None of them can write a sentence. None of them have ever had a thought. If they didn't have this kind of constant uh, stream of income uh, preserving them in their completely insulated safe spaces, um, like you know, almost like fragile little snowflakes that that can't be kind of touched or or melted by anything, but lest they lest they fall away, uh, like none of them would have jobs, and none of them would be none of them would be with us. There's no market for this. It's entirely manufactured culture war bullshit, um, and it should just be dealt with as such. It's not worth arguing with. Quite, but we are we are mere podcasters and not religious professors of moral and pastoral theology, so. <clears throat> and may we never become Regis professors of moral and <laughs> theology. So Rhodes introduced also laws that forced uh, black Africans into paying labor taxes. 
um, purposefully to to sort of force people from their lands um, into industrial centres. It was a sort of process of industrialization for the processing of the raw materials that were coming from the further colonisation. Um, and he did that precisely because there was this growing number of enfranchised black people in South Africa, and he did not want black people to hold any political control over their own life. He wanted white people alone to control the politics of what was to become South Africa. He was quite literally a white supremacist, and he, would have, he wouldn't have shied away from admitting it himself. He was proud of it. He once said, quote, if the whites maintain their position as the supreme race, the day may come when we shall be thankful that we have we have the natives with us in their proper position, end quote. I mean, but what is white supremacy? You if you're saying this person is a white supremacist, have, who is? Dare you refer to somebody who called the whites a supreme race as a white supremacist? How dare you, Hugh? <laughs> um, Stop rewriting history. Yeah, it's just, it's just this thing about these... These people being like the of their time. I mean, like the spirit of of the time, as it is, it's not some sort of nebulous ghost of history to which people either sort of conform or rebel. Like it's an attitude that's made by people. It's enforced through laws and customs. It's cemented by cultural attitudes, all of which are structured by these like material things. People were racist at the time because they said and did racist things to justify the exploitation and disenfranchisement of, of others. There's a direct link between racist attitudes and laws in the colony of the time, and the fact that the most politically powerful man of the time also happens to own the most productive diamond mines in the world. I mean, for fuck's sake, like, he's a prime minister. He owns a monopoly on diamonds. He is a white supremacist. Like, he's not just, like, being blown away. So, well, people at that time, you know, this isn't like your, your great Aunt Edith at, at the Thanksgiving table, you know? Like, this is fucking Cecil Rhodes saying this. Like, he made the spirit of the time. Which is and why you know they love him. Else? And you know who else was alive at this time? Roger fucking Caseman. And you know who else was alive at this time? W.B. Du Bois. And you know who else was alive at this time? Black people in South Africa who probably had in their spirit the idea that they were human fucking beings. And also we're, 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 we're developing like this sort of like um, engagement with the, with the, the political system to, to change, change things, which is precisely why he engaged in this disenfranchisement you know he didn't want the power of white people the material wealth of that white people were exploiting from the land to be challenged by black people who were becoming more wealthy and engaged in the political process like he like he's he's the godfather of apartheid like he explicitly wanted wanted that um but and not I mean, just all the people who were saying this about Rhodes now were all pro-apartheid just like thatcher and all of their favorite heroes yeah. so yeah, yeah. you know and and they would do it now if they get away with it yeah, they would um, I mean, they do, in just in different ways. Um, and it wasn't just uh, the Cape Colony that he, want, that he wanted to control in this way. He wanted the British specifically to colonise all of Africa in order to exploit its mineral wealth and open up profitable new markets for British industry. Sounds um, familiar. He wanted to build, famously, he wanted to build a railway that ran from Cairo in Egypt all the way to the, co the Cape. Um, and... Contrary to what these absolute bastards were saying, like the railways were not this benign gift from the British to the native population. Like they, he wanted to build it specifically in order to extract the raw materials from across the continent and to allow military trains to, to take troops to suppress rebellions and insurrections against British rule. He wrote, quote, I contend that we are the first race in the world and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. 
if there be a god, I think that what he would like me to do is paint as much of the map of Africa British red as possible, end quote. And so the, what is it, the Regis Professor of Moral and Political, Moral and political. Philosophy? Yeah, yeah. Um, argues just... that the person who says that we are the first race, um, that was, a, that was a, a, a good, and if there is a God, there may not even be a God, um, and if there is a God, what he wants is more, more money for me, uh, believes that that person should not be considered a white supremacist, and his, his memory should be honored, uh, not just not forgotten, but he should be, I think, should be forgotten either. I think we should have an annual holiday where we all piss on his grave. But, you know, that, that this guy should be honored um, because to not do that would be to ignore the fact um, that one time he was maybe nice to a black friend. Yeah. Yeah. Just making sure I have this one straight, yeah. I, you know. Um, otherwise, you are erasing history. Anyway. Um, a lot of uh, of Rhodes's political and economic strategy was was based around colonizing as much territory along the planned route of this railway as possible. Rhodes had been attempting for years to acquire um, a concession, which is the the right to dig for diamonds and golds uh, in Matabeleland, which is north of the Cape Colony and the Boer Republics. Lobengula, who was the king of the uh, Endebele of Matabeleland, had refused. So Rhodes then sent uh, Charles Rudd and some other associates to negotiate. And this is a, another controversial thing lost in history, but <clears throat> this is how it's supposed to have gone. That verbally, that they told the king, don't worry, there's only going to be 10 white miners who would enter his kingdom. Uh, and in return, he'll get these guns and et cetera, et cetera. But they, they knew that Loban Gula couldn't read. So they didn't include that promise in the treaty, the written treaty. And what's more, they included a clause that allowed Rhodes and his British South Africa company to introduce their own private police force to protect it. So, so later he would claim that he was misled, and it seems probably quite likely because he'd turned down ident almost identical um, treaties before. Um, and, and so the British South Africa company is very much like the um, East India Company or the, the Dutch East Indies Company. It's a company that's given a charter to exploit land by, in this case, the, the British government. Uh, you know, it's not land that they own, but it's like, yes, you could, we're, we're gonna allow you to go and colonize this land and, um, and take advantage of it and exploit it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously in somebody else's fucking kingdom, but there you go. And um, when the company received its charter, it explicitly included the clause to ensure that its lands were, quote, British in character and domicile. And also when it got the charter, the charter didn't give a defined upper limit to its northernmost limits of operation. It was kind of a, a blank slate for invasion and colonization of everything north of um, the Boer Republics. And so in short order, the um, BSAC occupied um, Mashona land, which was also uh, Matabele territory. The company then fought and war, won a series of wars against the Shona and the Endabali peoples who were resisting white colonization. And by 1894, the prime minister of the Cape and the chairman of De Vere's was also the de facto ruler of what had been uh, Matabele land and Mashona land. It was more than uh, 1,143,000 square kilometers of land 
everything between the Limpopo River and Lake Tanganyika, which is basically what makes up most of modern-day Zambia and Zimbabwe. And he called it Rhodesia. Yay! Um, and he would have taken more. Uh, in the end, like, actually, probably what put an upper limit and most northernmost limit was actually uh, not any treaties or charters. It was the sort of savagery of, of King Leopold of Belgium and his personal empire. You know, they, they just hit each other. Um, and he also tried to um, pull in the uh, Bechuana land protectorate, which was ruled at the time by the British colonial office. He tried to pull that into the charter of the of his company, the BSAC. But that was, uh, he was overruled in that, thanks to the campaigning in Britain of um, a number of kings, including uh, King Karma III of Bangwato tribe. Um, and they decided to actually, the, the colonial office in the, in the end ruled in their favour that it would remain a, a British protectorate. And he was obviously absolutely furious at the decision, and he wrote, uh, raged, <clears throat> quote, it is humiliating to be utterly beaten by these, and then a, a racial slur. Um, but Hugh, he wasn't a way to... He was, far, he was in, the words, in the words of the, the good Regis <laughs> Professor of Moral, whatever the fuck, he was far from being racist. You know, I wonder what words the Regis Professor of Moral, whatever the fuck, uses about black people uh, when yeah. cameras and microphones aren't on. It would be a real shame if someone were to, um, maybe with a secret microphone, have a recorded conversation with the Regis Professor and, and, and maybe attempt to discuss you know, things like skull sizes. Um, I don't want to imply that any specific results would occur, but you know, it, it would just be a fascinating experiment, I think, for, for human endeavor. Yeah. Like these people, and these people are like gaining more and more control of, of, of uh, you know, the British media and education. And, you know, like uh, they're the people claiming, you know, that there's like a sort of left wing plot to indoctrinate children. And this is what they believe that, you know, they're using, like, they're saying these people who like, openly claim to be white supremacists and are using these the most offensive racial slurs po possible and they say oh they're far from being racist they're admirable people and the, these are the people who the government is giving power to wankers great country Rhodes believed that Britain should expand exponentially as if blessed by God to colonize all of the earth it was this spiritual aim that that in the end led to his downfall as prime minister in 1896 when he orchestrated a raid as a sort of false flag attack against the independent Transvaal Republic in order to incite an uprising and dislodge the Transvaal government whom he felt were impeding the interests of the mine owners and implicitly the British. The so-called Jameson raid backfired and it was a catastrophe that ended his political career and he resigned as the Prime Minister in 1896. But despite this, he still used his considerable economic power to shift political policy. In 1899, during the first Boer War, he moved back to Kimberley, where he had started his career, knowing that his presence would force the British to relieve the town from its besiegement by Boers, and thus preserve De Beers' diamond mines in the area. But the heart problems that he had suffered since he was a young man, uh, they couldn't be outrun forever. And in 1902, in his holiday cottage on the Western Cape, his heart failed. His body was taken by funeral train from the Cape to Rhodesia, and he was buried in what is today Bulawayo in uh, Zimbabwe. His legacy lives on in his endowments to educational institutions, 
notably the Rhodes Scholarship, an international postgraduate scholarship for international, international students, which was originally established as a Rhodes wished, quote, to encourage and foster an appreciation of the advantages which I implicitly believe will result from the union of the English-speaking peoples throughout the world, end quote. And originally it was just for men as well, and only think from the UK, uh, America, and the United States, and Germany, although now it's been expanded and um, uh, accepts both men and women from anywhere in the world. His name also lives on in Rhodes University in uh, Makanda in the Eastern Cape in South Africa, which was founded two years after his death. And of course, in the statue of Rhodes that still stands at his alma mater, Oriel College, Oxford, the fate of which is currently being discussed by a university inquiry who will deliver their decisions sometime next year. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful t-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Well, that's a lot, too. Um, and, and thank you for telling us that, uh, that very disturbing and terrible story so well. Um, what I think is interesting, a lot of the... It touches on some themes that we've spoken about on the show before. And I'm thinking here mostly about the relationship between homosexuality and kind of militarist masculinity uh, and the relationship between homosexuality and colonialism. And in that relationship between homosexuality and colonialism, there has sometimes been, um, uh, like the version of that that we've sort of talked about has often been this kind of identification with or over-identification with or enjoyment of the sexuality of um, this kind of vision of the primitive colonial other. And maybe one of the reasons that we've talked about that a lot is because it's something that I research a lot. Um, this seems to be another thing entirely because Rhodes is, on the one hand, enjoying um, what is in colonies that are defined by cis-heteropatriarchal violence, right? So the uh, colony comes in and imposes on a different sex gender system, a cis-heteropatriarchal European sex gender system. And then inside of that, uh, there is paradoxically often more freedom for white male colonists sexually uh, just because um, the sort of constraints of domestic bourgeois life are not on them as much in this foreign space. And so there's more, and this is the, this is what people like Ann Stoller and Robert C.J. Young write about when they write about colonialism and sexuality. Uh, so on the one hand, um, Rhodes is enjoying um, that permissiveness with all of these uh, boys that, that sort of remain uncommented upon um, and, you know, weeping openly at funerals and, and telling people's wives that they're, that he's, uh, that he's jealous of them. Um, on the other hand, it seems to me like 
like none of this attraction is to the native people at all. Like it's entirely kind of contained within the the class of of colonizers who who are there, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like a, oh. a new spin on this. Yeah, there's yeah. It seems it seems to be like entirely his attraction seems to be entirely to like the colonizing class and specifically into this sort of um, younger. Um, you know, in the twenties, like men, he doesn't have they doesn't have this pederastic element, but it's uh, the the sort of the men who make empire, the young men who who risk everything to make empire. That seems to be what attracts him. I think also <laughs> without, getting, without getting too Freudian about the entire thing, um, or maybe getting too Freudian about the entire thing, who knows? Um, it is telling that it seems the only two people who he ever seemed to, only two women he ever seemed to show any respect to in his life were his mother, who died young, uh, I think when he was sort of nineteen twenty, and <laughs> the queen and empress you know? <laughs> oh. so so there's this sort of um this this perhaps this idea of this uh the empire um filling this familial maternal role and which of which he is attempting to please um as he attempted to please his mother well you know if there's a if there's a group of people who are defined by their warm family feeling it's the um British royal family, you know, the people who people who uh, married couples who invite each other to lunch by sending messages via footman, which is still, I found out today, how the Queen invites Prince Philip to lunch at Balmoral. It involves several pages. Um, are uh, certainly the people to look to if you're looking to for warm and uh, extremely normal interpersonal family relations. Well, I mean, um, it's, it's worth pointing out, though, that in terms of um, the the English middle-class model of the bourgeois family is to some extent solidified, cemented, or, or even imported by, um, by Prince Albert and Queen Victoria as, as this ideal model. And, and, and a lot of our understandings of, um, of this perfect um, domestic, almost nuclear family were, these models were sort of, if not invented, then really like capitalized upon as, as part of an empire building project. Um, and yeah. the, 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 along alongside of the, the sort of public school system, uh, the the aim was to produce a a generation of of young men who will go out and create the empire um, and always look home to you know the mother country quite quite literally to provide soccer and now, sustenance. What I've, what I've always said is that if you want to uh, if you want to base the family lives of a generation of people in a root the family lives of a generation of people in a very psychologically healthy way, you should name them after a, a couple who uh, resolved the problem of one of them not being able to be named king by having the other one name half of London after him. Um, but <laughs> um, it is also interesting, I mean, just to talk maybe a little bit about some of the ways in which Rhodes's particular approach to homosexuality, if we want to call it that, comes in today. And, and this is, you know, more of a comment than a question. Um, but um, this idea of having this kind of almost paternal relationship to these kind of younger, blonde, empire-building type men, um, there's a it, there's really interesting ties to um, some other people that we'll talk about this season, which I'll just say without, uh, without naming them directly, uh, but also to um, the impeccably colonially named uh, clothing retailer, Abercrombie & Fitch, um, who had a CEO very recently who um, was gay um, and who 
got extensive plastic surgery to sort of keep himself looking this sort of young, fit, uh, sort of American, uh, almost military masculine uh, ideal, like surfer military in, in between those two. Um, and also those are the only people who he employed and he employed many of them as his um, secretaries and uh, personal assistants. Um, but yeah, I mean, just this, this, this attraction to that particular kind of vision of masculinity seems to be um, a very long-standing trait um, and, and also very connected to fundamentally colonialist visions or understandings of masculinity and of the male body. Yeah. And the last, the last thing I'll say on the subject, in fact, um, is, is to take it back to this discussion of statues and uh, history. Um, the purpose of the statue of Cecil Rhodes is not to uh, teach people about the life of Cecil Rhodes. It's to, to valorize him as a, a certain type of figure and, to, uh, and, and his beliefs. You know, it, it is there to, to valorize the system of white supremacy. And one thing that I, I found interesting, I knew, I knew a fair amount about his life, but kind of uh, a li- I was a little bit blurry around the edges, is in reading it, even according to their principles that they probably claim of, of you know i guess this sort of bravery and dignity of these colonialist men who they not which is presumably what they support he wasn't he was a crook he was a he was a gangster figure he built he you know he built monopolies in order to swindle people out of more money and organized syndicates and screwed over his rivals and and uh you know broke his treaties and you know like he was what what is my challenge what is there to admire in the man even if you are a colonialist the 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 only thing you can really admire i guess that they would really admire him is the brute force with which he overran any objection and he imposed through threat and violence and lying exactly what he wanted and um you don't get that from the statue you get that from from reading his books from the books about him from from biographies from critical study of him um which, which, um, which is precisely why they want the statue and they want the 800-word think piece where they severely mangle historical truth to suggest that, for example, he, he believed in universal suffrage, uh, racial suffrage in South Africa, or that he um, was, quote-unquote, far from racist. Like, that's what they want. They want the, the, the short culture war think piece and they want the statue and they don't want you to look back and read his own words and read the critical historical 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 work that's been done on the man. And in fact, they're now doing everything they can do under the guise of free speech to make that kind of critical historical work uh, unfunded and uh, even in uh, primary education illegal. So yeah. uh, good and healthy country. Well, uh, thank you so much for that, Hugh. Um, what are some of the sources that you use to research this episode and where uh, could people turn if they wanted to learn more about Cecil Rhodes through the non-statue method of interpreting history? Um, yeah, so some of the books I, um, I referred to, one was called The Founder, Cecil Rhodes and the Pursuit of Power by Robert I. Rotberg, which is written by somebody who to some extent admires the man. So um, as, as with all books, in fact, read the critical eye, but, um, but uh, does a good job of really uh, interrogating along with the sources and, and uncovering a lot of his live story, which I got from that book. Also a book called The Secret Society, Cecil John Rhodes' Plans for a New World Order by Robin Brown, which I got some of the details of his sex life from. 
that book actually sort of suggests that he was looking and in fact managed to create a secret homosexual society which had long-lasting legacy throughout the early 20th century but doesn't do a particularly fantastic job of that but does mm, would be better if it focused perhaps on um the sort of sociality and network of power but there is again some some interesting and juicy details uh, about his sex life in there and then cecil rhodes his private life by his private secretary by philip jordan which was uh written a few years after he died by somebody who uh, knew him potentially intimately. Although as far as I know, never went down the big hole with him. Uh, and then fantastic book, as you mentioned before, Colonialism and Homosexuality by Robert Aldrich. Um, and lastly, uh, the website gayinfluence.blogspot.com, which is um, has these great potted biographies of um, a lot of historical queer figures. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode. You can follow the show on Twitter at BadGaysPod. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And at BadGaysPod.com, you can find our t-shirts, a link to the Patreon that makes this show possible, and an episode archive of any episodes you might have missed. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye. Bad, 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 bad,